Welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. Domestic violence. Not an easy topic of conversation, but an incredibly important one to have. I'm 70 episodes deep, and it's about time we looked at this topic, because unfortunately, domestic violence is something something that permeates all aspects of our civilization, and the special needs community is no exception. Now, I thought for a moment about adding a trigger warning to this episode, but I don't really think it needs one. We don't go into any details or specifics, there are no descriptions, so I think it's a safe episode to listen to. We do discuss the topic of domestic violence. We talk about its occurrence, we talk about what to look for, patterns, how we can help, how we can help protect our children, but we don't go into any of the details that may uh, be triggering or trauma-inducing for people. However, I want to say this knowing that um, you know you, you have to make your own decisions you listen at your own discretion, but I think that this is a safe episode. So I spoke with Erica Bowen, a woman who has spent much of her career in violence prevention. She is a registered forensic and coaching psychologist and the Imagineer of the Hope Makers Limited, which is coaching for social entrepreneurs and is now a podcast. We discussed some of the knowns and unknowns about domestic violence, both within the special needs community and without. Erica talked about some signs to watch out for or patterns to notice. And then we discussed the very real and alarming increase in domestic violence issues with the onset of the pandemic. We spoke about how we can help to protect our children and the importance of having the right conversations with them. And having those conversations is so important. We then closed off this episode on a more positive note which is the topic of hope and Erica's coaching work and her new podcast, The Hope Makers. So if you'd like to learn more about Erica, you can check out her website at www.thehopemakers.co.uk. She is based in the UK. And you can follow her on Instagram at the underscore hope underscore dr. And I'll have this in the show notes so you can just click on it and get to it easier. And her, again, her podcast is called The Hope Makers. And that's, you can find that at at thehopemakers.buzzsprout.com. Now, because this topic is of such importance and because people who are experiencing domestic violence um, quite possibly have limited resources or time or access, um, I'm going to go ahead and list some numbers here. Usually I just direct people to the show notes to get the resources and the, and the um, 
you know, the books and the other podcasts and things like that that I reference and I want to direct you all to, I usually just put that in the show notes. And I will have these websites and these show notes in, or I'm sorry, these websites and that phone numbers in the show notes. But I'm going to take a moment and just read them here. So um, just for easier access for people who may need them. So if you want to just jump ahead a few little um those, those little spinny arrows that say 30 jumps ahead 30 seconds. So if you want to do that a couple of times to get to the interview, go ahead. Um, or if you just want to be patient as I read through these numbers, but it feels very important to make sure that this information is as easily accessed as it can be. So uh, just remember that if you are somebody who is experiencing domestic violence or domestic abuse or Even if you're not sure if that's what it is, please reach out, whether that is to a friend, a coworker, a family member, or call a number. You can always call any, you can call any of these numbers and they can direct you to a number that's perhaps more suitable, or they can, they can certainly direct you to to a resource that um, can be of service to you if they can't do it themselves. So Just know that you are not alone. You deserve to be safe. You deserve to be treated well. And there are so many people out there willing to help you. So just please remember that. Now I'm going to list through the resources and then we'll get into this very lovely conversation with Erica. She's a very educated woman and it was it was a very pleasant conversation for such a heavy topic. So now if anyone is in immediate danger in the U.S., we know to call 911. Now there is the initiative. They are advocates for persons of disabilities who are victims of abuse. Their website is www.dviforwomen.org, women being W-O-M-E-N. And that number is one three zero three eight three nine five five one zero. The alternative number, I assume this is a toll-free number, one eight seven seven eight three nine five five one zero. Next, we have the National Domestic Violence Hotline. www ndvh.org and that number is 1-800-799-7233 or 1-800-799 and then the word safe. Then we have the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence and their website is www.ncadv.org and you can check out their website and there they have a lot of stuff and some of the things I found that seemed really helpful was a personalized safety plan and then you can ha- you can get access to a series of six free webinars on financial education because I think that most of us realize that uh, financial abuse and financial power has such a, a plays such a part in somebody being victimized. It certainly can. And the number for there is 
Excuse me. Now we have next we have the National Child Abuse Hotline and that is www.childhelpusa.org and that number is 1-800-4 a child. In numbers that is 1-800-422-4453. The National Sexual Assault Hotline is www.rain Dot O-R-G, and the number is 1-800-656-4673 or 1-800-656-HOPE. I've added the National Human Trafficking Resource Center or the Polaris Project that um, human trafficking is something that is an issue everywhere and uh, I believe is a <clears throat> bigger issue in my neck of the woods than people realize. The website is www.polarisproject.org. That's P-O-L-A-R-I-S-P-R-O-J-E-C-T. The phone number is 1-800-373-7888. Or you can text HELP, H-E-L-P, to Two two three seven three three, or be free. The National Resource Center on Domestic Violence is www.nrcdv.org, and that phone number is one eight hundred five three seven two two three eight. Now I'm going to add um, because Erica Bowen is in the UK. <coughs> And so I want to state that if you are in the UK and having an emergency, um, call 999. And for the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, that number is 0808-2000247. Now in the show notes, I've also added a few YouTube videos that I found, one from Planned Parenthood and <clears throat> one from healthywomen.org. And these are a little, just little videos that can help you get the conversation started with your children about what healthy relationships look like. Because as Eric and I discuss, it's such an important conversation to have. So um, I'm going to go ahead and take us into the interview, <laughs> listing off those numbers, uh, must with my voice, I guess. But um, yeah, I just want to reiterate the importance of, of seeking help and finding help. It is out there. People want to help you and they want you to be safe. And let's keep having these conversations. Let's reach out to each other. Let's talk to our children and make sure they are armed with the knowledge of how safe they deserve to be and what a healthy relationship looks like. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Erica Bowen, thank you so much for being here with me today to um, talk about the work that you do and talk about an issue that is um, a heavy issue, but very important one to talk about. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me on. 
Yeah. So just to give the audience an idea of who you are, you, um, I got this off your website and I'm interested to, to know this. You, it says you're a registered forensic and coaching psychologist Yeah. and the Imagineer of the Hope Makers, which we will, um, I definitely want to get into that in a little bit and okay. talk about that. But if you could first explain to me what a forensic and coaching psychologist is. Sure. So it's a bit of a torturous story, really. So um, I'm actually, I have a 20 year history as an academic. So I got my PhD in 2003 in a discipline of forensic psychology. And that embedded me very much in the world of violence prevention, because my research at that time was about understanding how we work with perpetrators of domestic violence to stop them from being abusive, really. Um, and I evaluated a program that was designed to do that. So that kind of embedded me in forensic psychology. I then went on and trained in forensic psychology as a practitioner forensic psychologist. So that involved working in prison and also working in the family court sector doing risk assessments around domestic abuse. Again, mainly with a focus on kind of child protection issues and the notion of failure to protect, which is a really contentious issue when you're working with women um, who typically have been abused by a male partner. So that's kind of the, the practitioner forensic background. And then a couple of years ago, I decided that I wanted to kind of potentially shift focus from being very much an academic and practicing forensic psychologist into working in a slightly more hopeful way. And that will link into the hope makers in a bit. Mm -hmm is a lot of the work I've encountered as a forensic psychologist hasn't been hasn't been particularly hopeful and it's a really kind of strange thing to say but a lot of forensic psychology is about public protection and that isn't always about putting people at the heart of it so you might be interested in you know why people commit abusive or violent acts you might be interested in what we can do to try and stop that from happening but a lot of that still focuses on people as though they're broken. And I struggled just with my own values because I don't see people in that way. And what coaching has enabled me to do is to work with people in very much a strengths way. So I appreciate that people are not broken, but I also work from a perspective that people have their own solutions to their problems. And my role as a coach is to help them get to those solutions rather than me being an expert on their lives, telling them what to do, them going off, trying it, having varied success, and then coming back and having to repeat that cycle. So, yeah, so a couple of years ago, I decided to train as a coach. And so I am registered as a coaching psychologist in the UK with the British Psychological Society. So that's what that means. Um, but yeah, so I have got two, two registrations as a practitioner psychologist. Okay. I very much would work with people once they've been convicted. So um, when I was working in prison, it was very much around doing risk assessments. So can anybody be released or how does the prison need to work with them differently to reduce their risk of reoffending? Mm -hmm. So that was very much where I was based. And then, like I said, in family court, it was more, again, risk assessment based, but usually around risk for the child in the context of domestic violence. So we have a peculiar narrative about, you know, if a woman is being abused by her partner, by her male partner, and there are children present, we somehow also expect her to be able to 
care and protect and you know make her child safe all of the time mm -hmm. but we also then go to the nth degree and say well actually if you can't do that and it, because of dealing with her own situation then we might actually take the children away and it's again such a demoralizing context to work in and I found very little hope working as a psychologist in that situation um you know, and they're hugely important issues and they impact so directly on people's lives, but also the impact can, you know, be there for years and years after. So we kind of have to get it right. And I think in some of those situations, I just didn't feel like we really were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, absolutely. I imagine that it's one of those um, careers that you can burn out really easily and that it yeah. takes a very special person to be able to, to work in that field and to be able to hear these stories every day and to, you know, I think there's so much frustration. I don't know how it is in England, but I know in the yeah. States, I know so many personal stories of, you know, the system kind of failing yeah. children and mothers in situations that aren't safe and just that's where the frustration is. There is a huge amount of frustration. And at the moment, there's a lot of publicity around family court in particular, actually, and around um, judgments about whether or not abusive men can be safe fathers mm. uh, and what the presence of domestic abuse in a, a, a marital or parental relationship means for the child. And it's it's such a difficult area of work. And, you know, and absolutely, I mean, I I worked in it for probably a couple of years I think um, and you just get to a point where you think actually I can't keep doing this you know and as much as you want to be part of it because you think that you're a good practitioner actually the system isn't really set up always to get the outcome that really is best for everybody involved mm -hmm. um, and that can be very very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And am I uh father was raised but his father was very abusive and my dad was thankfully one of those uh people that used that as a way to you know as his guide point of like how not to be how not to parent that's the thing with everything isn't it you know when when you become a parent you make a decision I think most people either kind of replicate what they know or they completely turn against it um and it's not always easy to know who is going to replicate and who is going to turn against, mm -hmm. um, you know, and sometimes that's a really active decision. And sometimes it's not because, you know, family relationships are so complex as well. You know, it can turn on the nature of the relationship you have with the mother of your child or, you know, or just that sense you have from your own childhood of actually, I'm never, ever going to do that to my kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and then take like this last year, for example, mm -hmm. the, the stressors of the yes. pandemic and um you know I know I, I, I've heard from people that the numbers of domestic violence cases have risen dramatically and you know just with the stress of being home and and the kids not yeah. being able to go to school and have a safe place like it's just it's heartbreaking it really is and I mean I think in the UK there are reports that certain kind of helplines have reported kind of a 50 to 60 percent increase in the number of calls they've received mm. um the police call out rates have gone up and you know the difficulty is when you have a lockdown 
if you don't highlight escape routes to people, they simply won't think they can do anything. And it's hard enough to get to the point where you want to actually have the courage to do anything. And then in a national lockdown, that seems to be taken away. So you're then left at home with the person who is your abuser and terrorizer mm. and potentially with children there too. Mm-hmm. So has there, has there been an effort to, to get the word out more, to, to be more aware in, in this time of, of getting the information to people who may need it? There, there has been some. Um, there are kind of, you can have free train travel if you're escaping domestic abuse in the UK. There are schemes where you can say a particular word to make people aware that that's what you're going through in order to kind of qualify and to make people aware. Um, I think people have tried, but it's so difficult, isn't it? Because in the middle of a pandemic, everyone's eyes are on the pandemic Mm -hmm. and they're on the public health issue. And, you know, the, I guess the seemingly more important and pressing issue of illness and death arising from COVID. Um, And I think it took a while for people to go, oh God, actually there are secondary effects here that we haven't really paid attention to. And and we will see them for years to come. You know, this isn't going to be a, okay, restrictions are lifted and everyone's going to be fine because there are backlogs everywhere. You know, there are backlogs in support. There are backlogs in court processes. There will be backlogs in in people deciding that they need to leave. Mm -hmm. The demand for services, I think, will just keep on going up probably within the first 12 months once we're out of this whatever that looks like I'm not even sure (laughs) I can't even imagine what that is you know Mm -hmm. um but it will just there will just be these other pockets of desperate need that will come through because the pressure of the pandemic has been removed Mm -hmm. yeah and I know for me that's definitely something uh you know in the beginning it was like okay you know I'll go home everybody just go home let's do this let's go home and and stay safe Mm. and you know yeah now a year later it's like okay yeah wow this isn't working this you know the mental health of people is deteriorating and and you know so you know I still want to move forward like cautiously and and keep my community safe but it's also like okay this isn't working yeah and and it is and there are so many layers to it because obviously what we know is the overlap between domestic abuse and child maltreatment is between 40 to 80 percent so if you've got higher rates of domestic abuse, you've got higher rates of children that are exposed to that. And, you know, it's strange. The academic life is a strange place sometimes because there are debates over, well, you know, if a child is in the home when mum and dad are being violent or when mum is being abused, does that make them a victim or not? <laughs> in that situation, even if they're just aware of the tension in the environment, that's enough. You don't Mm -hmm. have to see it. You don't have to hear it. And kids are very, very good at picking up on the subtle changes in the dynamics, you know, in the temperature in the room, depending on the mood of whichever one of their parents has changed. You know, so all of that will be, you know, gone large during the pandemic because, you know, most people are working in survival mode just because of the fact that there's a pandemic. You know, the background levels of stress have gone through the roof. It's almost like being in a war zone. Yes, we're not waiting for bombs to drop, but that sense that you can see in some communities that more people are being more badly affected by COVID. You don't know how close it's going to come. You know, sometimes you can see it, you know, down your road. 
you don't know if you're going to be next so that's all going on in the background and that's without anything else happening you know that's just everybody's average day and then when you've got unhealthy relationships and abusive relationships you've then got that layer on top of that background stress and that background stress feeding into those abuse dynamics as well mm-hmm. so everything will be much more yeah much more deeply felt mm-hmm. well i want to bring this to the community the special needs yeah. community and yeah. talk talk about that and how much you know about violence in the special needs community is that a pretty common uh, yeah so i mean if you take international statistics and and without even thinking about the nature of communities that are represented within them then you typically have a statistic of about one in three women will experience domestic abuse during the course of their lifetime we don't actually know if that's the same in special needs communities Mm. the data don't exist we have a sense that people in the special needs communities are more vulnerable And one thing that we do know when you look at the, I guess, abuse characteristics and how perpetrators, you know, abuse somebody, what they tend to do is to use kind of a unique characteristic against them. And so that could be the fact that somebody is part of the special needs community is what actually gets used against them. So I did some research about four years ago now, just trying to work out what we knew because, I'd had another psychologist colleague come to me saying, I work in the community with people in the criminal justice system. We're getting more cases of domestic violence perpetrators from um, the special needs community coming through to us. And we're not quite sure what we can do and, and how we can work with them or what we know about working with this population. And when we looked at the literature, there were literally six studies that had been published and all of them were about victims who were, I guess, characterized as having intellectual disabilities, um, most of which were living semi-independently and Mm. somewhat independently living. Um, And we found that the experiences that were documented were very, very similar to the accounts that are portrayed in, in the media you know, high levels of manipulation, high levels of controlling behavior. Financial abuse seemed to be something that I think was probably more more widely highlighted. So I was involved in reviewing, unfortunately, a domestic homicide review um, a few years ago. And it seemed that the individual involved had been almost preyed upon by a man who had no home, wasn't part of the um, special needs community, but saw somebody who was vulnerable, who would almost kind of take pity on him. And he racked up, you know, tens of thousand pounds worth of debt, took all of her money, spent it all, moved in with her very quickly. Um, And that seems to be quite a typical pattern. Mm -hmm. If there is a pattern, is a sense of what seemed to be very new relationships moving very quickly Mm. Um, often and when you look at the literature again you might find that if the man is the perpetrator sometimes he's not but if he is that he could be you know substantially several years older 
than his partner. And that happens within and out with of the intellectual disabilities populations. But there is an interesting feature of having somebody who is substantially older than the female partner being very controlling, very domineering, and then very abusive. And what you tend to find is that that person will start to isolate the woman that they're with. And so there'll be a sense that she's not allowed to maintain connections with her family and her friends in the way that she would before. But she probably would not necessarily even see that that was happening because it would just be rationalized and kind of talked away as being nothing. Um, and the, the impact is very, very similar. So, you know, high levels of mental health, physical health, sometimes sexual health problems as consequences. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, all of those things that I guess we'd expect from somebody who's experienced incredibly traumatic experience um, are also represented within the special needs community that have experienced domestic abuse too. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder if people with uh, intellectual disabilities of, of various mm. degrees living on their own, hopefully they have a good support system to kind of help keep an eye on them and be catch those red flags of... You would hope so. You would hope so. But I mean, it's, it's difficult. You know, you could be living next door to somebody and not see the red flags. You know, I mean, it's... it's it's those, those kinds of behaviors that to the, an external person might not actually seem to be what they really are. And that's the, the thing that makes domestic violence so tricky. You know, even if you look at the kind of like the police response and there's been a lot of research on the police response and, you know, lots of things about victim experiences of the police response. And in the UK, we define domestic abuse as a pattern of behavior. And of course, what police turn up to is an incident, you know, a one-off from their mm. perspective. So when you go into it with that mindset, it's like, oh, you know, it was a one-off incident that looked like this. It's clearly nothing. And unless you've actually got a sense that we should be looking out for patterns of behavior, it's not just a one-off. It's the, okay, well, it was that, but then what's happened since? That's what we need to be aware of. Mm -hmm. You know, and obviously what you don't want to do is to wait for that one incident where you're sure you know that really really sure that that is a horrific incident happening next door but unless we're actually looking out for those other signs the likelihood is that might be the point at which we go oh god something's happening mm -hmm. you know and with retrospect you know hindsight gives you 2020 vision you can then start seeing these patterns mm -hmm. but at the time when it's just a one-off and it might be a small thing everyone wants to see the best in people. You know, we very rarely go around expecting people to be awful because most of the time they're not. So, you know, we've got these implicit biases, which mean that we're less likely to see it anyway, but being aware that it can exist, being aware that in a pandemic, it's likely to be existing at a higher level. And, you know, it could be somebody not being allowed out. It could be, somebody being told when they can phone you it could be somebody yeah just seeming to kind of disappear a little you know not being around as much not being at the window as often all of these small things could be a sign and equally they could not and that's the difficulty is really 
knowing when it really is something mm-hmm. <laughs> and everybody struggles with that so you know it's, it's very easy to say these are the, you know there are warning signs but equally they're very very hard to spot so you know no one should I guess take it upon themselves to be on the lookout you know religiously but equally if they're aware that something has happened also not to feel horrifically guilty if they didn't spot it because the likelihood is it wasn't easy to spot you know and I think we we think you know we call it domestic violence and it seems you know such a horrific thing which it is and it can be but for many people a lot of it actually isn't that horrific it's just a twist on normal behavior and then occasionally it might escalate to something that is horrific so you know it's 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 not always easy to spot Hmm. Well, and I and I imagine, um, you know, thinking of children and perhaps experiencing it, uh, you know, like you said, like a little, just kind of a little twist on, mm. on, on normal. And I think that you know, kids uh, with special needs are perhaps, you know, definitely more um, manip- uh, manipulatable. Is that a word? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Know, easier manipulated to be yes. manipulated and. Um, you know, and they don't always have the voice to speak up about what's been happening to them. No, absolutely. You know, and I think, I mean, that that's a whole other issue, isn't it? But, you know, the, the trying to, to enable people to feel empowered and, and for everyone else to listen takes a huge shift in understanding as well. Um, you know, particularly with, with populations who are, you know, that is, is one of the, I guess, one of the, the risk concerns is sometimes the level of naivety that people in the special needs community have means that they are just so willing to accept people as they see them and and to not see even more so those behaviors that are concerning for what they are you know Mm -hmm. and that's no fault of their own but equally when they do see something they don't understand and that they're worried about we should enable them and empower them to speak up and take what they say seriously too Mm-hmm. So how, as we, as parents, how can we, uh, what steps can we take to kind of help our children be safer in the world? It's about being open and honest, but not terrifying, you know, and it's such a difficult balance, isn't it? You know, because <laughs> I've got a 12 year old and we have conversations about relationships and about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate in the relationship. And those are conversations we need to have across the board. And Again, we know that, you know, if you've got children who are within the special educational needs community in school, they tend not also to have access to the same kind of sex and relationship education that mainstream kids do. So the onus then again comes back on families to actually be open and honest and have those conversations and not think that they're inappropriate, but to try and have them in in an age and ability appropriate way, Mm -hmm. you know, and to develop trust you know and it's not always easy for kids to trust their parents for a whole variety of reasons you know they're not um, you know necessarily problematic but to you know enable and empower your children to know that they can talk to you about anything without fearing judgment I think is is one of the the best things we can do for our kids regardless of which population they're in if they're special educational needs or not I think we just owe it to them, you know, because they'll grow up knowing that they are taken seriously, that they have been validated, 
even if they get it wrong, you know, because everybody does. Everybody looks at something and thinks, oh God, I think that's really worrying. And will tell someone and it turns out to be nothing, but they still need to feel that they can make that mistake and it be okay, rather than being shut down or it being a topic we just don't discuss. You know, everyone is entitled to healthy relationships. Um, and, and that's what we need to be talking to our kids about. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's easy to, I know, no, I know for me to like think when I think about the safety of my daughter, you know, mm. really kind of control the environment and of who course. she has access to, but you know, it's easy to forget, like, no, I need to be having the same conversations with her that I have with my 16 year old. I mean, that I was having with her at eight, not, <laughs> but no, no, absolutely. And it is so hard, isn't it? You know, particularly when you can see the vulnerability in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, and you feel, because naturally you just want to protect your kids. Of course you do. You know, we all do. Um, but I think it is about remembering that actually, you know, we still need to have those conversations as much as, you know, the, the thought of that type of conversation can be difficult for us as parents even. <laughs> you know, is that kind of actually, what if I don't talk to them about it? How are they going to grow up? What's their, you know, what's their understanding of relationships going to be? How's that going to impact on them when they are slightly older? You know, and when they start becoming inquisitive themselves or, or worried mm-hmm. you know then we need to know that they can come to us and say look you know I'm worried or I don't understand or I'm confused or this happened and I don't get it or what even was this <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think it's just it is just so important yeah I think I mean I, I think with all of these things there are probably pockets of really good practice that are really local mm-hmm. Um, and I know in the UK, you know, we've got a couple of charities. Um, there's a charity called Men Cap who have had campaigns about healthy relationships in the past. Um, but I think it will always come down to people looking to see what is going on locally mm-hmm. and maybe connecting with educational establishments. It's difficult because you just don't know. And that's half the challenge. You know, we've never really managed to get these issues you know it's so high up in policy for people to go right we need a uniform a- approach or even just some uniform thinking about this issue would be nice uh-huh. let alone policies or anything else <laughs> um you know so it does end up coming down very much to, to you know really passionate individuals that are doing really good work and wanting to, to spread what they're doing mm-hmm. um you know which doesn't make it easy then to find necessarily yeah, I can see that. I, I feel like there's still kind of this, you know, cultural view of, you know, what happens in somebody's home is it's their business. And I think so many people want to shy away from involving themselves in that. And absolutely, absolutely. You know, and it is, it's difficult, isn't it? Because everybody obviously has a right to privacy and no one's saying anything against that. However, everyone has a right to family life that is Mm non-abusive everybody has a right to having (laughs) you know uh, to live a life where they are not victimized and they're not terrorized in their own home um and i think if we've got a situation where we're suspicious then we've got two causes of action we can do something and it be investigated and we can you know be you know assured that everything's fine we can do nothing and worst case scenario something happens you know and I guess for me uh, it's just a sense of if it feels wrong 
it possibly is you know <laughs> if you see something if you see a relationship and it doesn't seem to be working the way you'd expect if there is yeah a sense of somebody controlling the other person and that could be from the way they're holding them from the way they're allowing them to walk down the road you know it doesn't even have to necessarily be verbal but you know we all pick up on signs we can all walk into a room and go something's a bit off don't mm -hmm. find out what's going on and it's about kind of i guess training ourselves to to believe our instincts in those circumstances um and and to think through, through you know if if i'm wrong then great mm -hmm. if i'm right i could have saved somebody's life there you go yeah that's a good way to to think about it i appreciate that well, um, how about we lighten this conversation a bit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk about the hope makers. Can mm. you tell us about that? Yeah. So the hope makers <laughs> is, oh God, I guess it represents everything I do in my post academic career, really. So I have a podcast called the hope makers, which basically enables me to shine a light on stories of people that have kind of overcome adversity and now work to create hope in other people's life. So I have spoken to people who have been coaches, who have kind of come through their own health challenges, who have then created a, a business where they coach other people through similar or associated health challenges. I have spoken to people who have been through bereavement and have used that as a major lesson in terms of going on to hail other people that are, are dealing with bereavement. Um, and it's given me the ability to actually just to talk about hope and, and what we think it is and I always ask my guests, you know, what they think people can do to bring hope into their life, because I think particularly, I mean, the, the podcast started in January, so it hasn't been going that long. And obviously it started in the middle of a pandemic. I think, you know, <laughs> the sense of hope that everyone had, I think was through the floor. You know, in the UK, we had just gone into another lockdown, which we're still currently in. Um, and it felt, I think this time, the lockdown felt so much harder because we'd had one come out of it slightly and then gone back into one. And it was over Christmas and it was dark, you know, the days were short and it just felt like everything seemed to be running away from us, I think, at that time. And the podcast enabled me to connect with just some of the most incredible people I've ever met. You know, it's been such a privilege to speak to people about what they've been through and what hope means to them and the lessons they've learned and how they work with it now. Um, and I've had lovely feedback as well from other people saying, you know, they'll listen to an episode and it just makes them feel better. And I'm kind of like, you know, if it does that for one person a week, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's, that's the Hope Makers podcast. The Hope Makers Limited is my company. So I'm also a coach and I coach Broadly, I coach social entrepreneurs, so they're pretty much the same people that I interview on my podcast. Um, so people who have a, a purpose driven business um, and I'm passionate and I guess still incredibly naively hopeful that we can all make the world a better place. And so the people I interview share that naive dream, but are possibly being slightly more successful than I am at the moment. <laughs> so, again, working with them is, is, is great. I get to help them create the business that works for them in terms of the impact they want to achieve. And I specialize in working with burnout within that as well. So for people who may have been established and quite successful, 
but who are kind of struggling to maintain a connection with their passion and their purpose, then I work with them to kind of reignite that spark and, and enable them to work in a way that means they can have the impact they want to do in the world, but also can stay sane, which I think is you know, equally important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So of the episodes that you've put out so far, is there one that uh, was like your favorite or was really inspiring that you'd like to direct oh. people to? Yeah. So I, mean, I know you love um, them all. <laughs> I do but... love them all. They're like my children, each one, you know, you kind of put them out and it's like, oh, this is lovely. Um, mm -hmm. I think the one, yes, yeah, so actually the first one was a real privilege. And I spoke to a guy called Jimmy Clare and he's actually on the <gasps> autism spectrum. I'm interviewing him next week. Are you? Oh, yes. he's wonderful. He is really wonderful. Oh. And that was, it was such a good interview. Um, and to represent somebody from the autism community who by, you know, his own judgment is living a life he never thought he could have. Um, you know, and he, yeah, he was on my, my first episode that I put out and that's, that will always be a favorite. Um, and then I have an interview that I conducted with, with two people who are a, a working and life couple who I encountered last August and they taught me a technique called havening, which I brought into my coaching. But when I got to interview them, I learned so much about them that I didn't know because I'd only ever been trained by them and I didn't know them <laughs> really people. Um, and so they are Tony and Julie and Julie had overcome a major autoimmune illness, um, which had left her in a wheelchair and I had no idea at all. But what got me about talking to those two is just their positivity, their, their mental strength, and they always see the best in people, you know, they re and they look for it. It's not just a, an optimistic view. They actively look to find the best in, in everybody they see, and they call it looking for the diamond. Mm. Um, and they were just great to interview. So, yeah, I think they're, they're, they're the kind of two that, that linger with me. Okay, great. So people check those episodes out. Yeah, I'll check them out. They sound good. Yeah, that's funny. As soon as you said Jimmy Clare, I was like, oh, I, I know that name. <laughs> yeah, no, he's great. Yeah, good. So how can people find you and the podcast? Okay, so my website is www.thehopemakers.co.uk. Um, I have a page there about my podcast as well. If anybody wants to be on it, they can complete the form. Um, and I will look over and if they think that they, they fit the brief, then I would love to have them on. Um, you can see me on Instagram where I'm actually at the hope doctor with underscores in between the and doctor. Okay. Um, and you can and send me all these and I'll put them in there. I'll, I'll send them all oh, to you. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. My website is probably the easiest place to find me. Okay. Great. And, and people um if they're interested in working with you you do you have openings like can they yeah they can they can contact me through my website or they can email me at erica at the hopemakers.co.uk okay great and one last question you have the um i saw that kind of your is it your motto or the the poco a poco yeah so poco a poco was my original business name and it means little by little the way that I coach, everything that I do is about taking the smallest steps because you can set a goal and be completely overwhelmed the moment that you set it. And so my process of coaching is about breaking everything down into the smallest steps that you can take to create the life that you desire. <laughs>